Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Charles D. King. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Charles D. King is a producer and the founder and CEO of Macro, a multi-platform media organization whose mission is to represent the voices and perspectives of people of color. Today, he'll discuss the origins of Macro, Macro's representation efforts and vision, how listeners can get involved, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, and I'm the founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have the pleasure of having Charles D. King, CEO and the founder of Macro. Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat, Charles. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you for having me. I'm really honored. Uh, love everything that you're doing and who you are, who you're speaking to, and it's, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here today. Oh, thank you so much. Charles, you've had this amazing career that doesn't show any sign of a slowdown, having worked with people like Tyler Perry, Oprah Winfrey, Terrence Howard, been a part of some of the biggest movies in Hollywood. But before we get there, let's take you all the way back to Decatur, Georgia. And tell us about your upbringing outside of the ATL and how was that growing up in that particular time? And tell us about your dreams as a young man. Yeah, okay. So um, my my family moved south when uh, when we were pretty young. We stopped off. I was born in Harlem, but moved south uh, when I was four. We stopped off in North Carolina for a few years. And then we moved down to Atlanta and moved to the Decatur and planted roots there from the time I was eight, eight years old on. So I considered that home. And uh, my, fa- my father is Bermudian. My mother is from New York. Uh, they met while my father was at Howard and uh, Howard Medical School. And, uh, and he, he started dating him and his classmate's daughter. And that's the, <laughs> so my <laughs> uncle was also there at Howard Medical School. So I had a uh, you know, upbringing there in, 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 while growing up in Decatur with my mother who grew up in New York, my father who's Bermudian. So, you know, we were, but we we're in the South and it was interesting when we moved to Decatur, the, the, the area of Decatur, the suburban area that we're in, in, in South DeKalb, we really got to experience an interesting shift that happened. We were one of the first black families that moved to that neighborhood. And then as, as the years went by, we saw the neighborhood transition. You know, you've heard of that term white flight. Well, I saw white flight happen. Like those first from when I was like eight to like 12 or so. Most of the kids in the neighborhood were white kids. And I saw as more black families move to the neighborhood, white families started like packing up and leaving. And it was interesting seeing that transition in elementary school and definitely when I got to high school at uh, Southwest DeKalb High School. Uh, when I was uh, in the eighth grade, because it was an eighth through 12th grade uh, school. When I was in the eighth grade, uh, most of the people in the junior, like in the, who were juniors and seniors, I'd say over half of them, if not, you know, I'd say 60% of those classes were white. By the time I was a sophomore, our school was like 96% black. And I just saw, I saw this shift happen. And the great thing for me was I grew up really at a school. I went to a a public 
you know, primarily black high school, but, you know, early days there too. A lot of my friends, I played soccer and tennis. You know, a lot of the kids were white, you know, a lot of my early friends. And I really just grew up with a, in a background where I had all kinds of friends. But I, but I had a family and my mother who's like really an activist, you know, writer, artist, who was really about the people. Uh, so I grew up with that instilled in me. And my father had this, um, you know, a kind of British influence growing up in Bermuda, but it was also, you know, started his own practice as a, as a, as a pediatrician. And I was able to see early on for him what it's like to have your own business. And I really, it, it didn't dawn on me till years later what that was like being exposed to my dad building his own practice and, you know, day by day, week by week. Uh, but he, you know, calling his own, op, you know, having his own hours. He was my soccer coach. He was my tennis coach. My mother was a stay-at-home, you know, mother. She worked out of the home. But while she was working, you know, while we were at school, she would be writing her book. So I had just a very, I had a wonderful um, childhood. My sister's two years younger than me. We were in all kinds of activities. And, you know, I had a very blessed childhood. But also what I experienced, my, my parents got divorced when I was in the eighth and ninth grade, somewhere in there. And that's when I, some of the shift of, so having some adversity, you know, began to, to happen where, um, you know, we ended up, you know, having a joint custody um, situation where in my through basically 10th through 12th grade, I lived half of the year with my father, my sister and I, and then I would go to see my mother every other weekend and half of the year with my mother and I would see my father every other weekend. So I, I, I was blessed in that even though they got divorced, I have both of my parents very actively involved in my life. And I see that the impact that that's had and how well my, that me and my sister have done as a result of just the incredible parenting and what they instilled in us. But also what I experienced was my father being a physician and with the divorce that they went through, I didn't have that silver spoon, your dad's a doctor experience. I mean, I had jobs from the time I was 13, cutting grass, babysitting, worked at his office, summer counselor, maintenance man, stock boy at at, wall, at a convenience store, retail sales. Like I worked my ass off and it was really instilled early on and didn't do the Jack and Jill and a lot of those things that like a lot of, you know, maybe other kind of maybe more upper middle class black folks were doing. So I really was, I so something about that work ethic and what was instilled early on in me, I, I think that that's been applied towards my 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 educational background and my thirst and desire to make sure I'm achieving and the hunger that I've had. And uh, so it probably impacted me. And so I think, you know, during the during those college, during those years, I knew education was important. And yes, I was able to get a great scholarship to Vanderbilt University. Uh, which is where I went for my undergraduate studies, and um, so much of my guy life and 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 really kind of begin to transform from there. So, so, so Charles, I want to step back to high school where you say it transitioned from a white high school to a black high school. Did the when you think back and look back, did the degree of excellence? And academics, did that change because of that or not? Did it still stay at a very high level? The excellence was instilled in me from home. You know, they, we, 
my mother was an avid reader. My father obviously was a, was a physician and he had, you know, was a really a great student all through school. And so there was a thing for me of like, I wanted to do well. I wanted to see, but it was also instilled in me with my parents that I could achieve anything. What also happened is not something I've, I don't know if I've even talked about this publicly. When we first moved to the neighborhood, it was at the same time busing was happening where um, uh, the, the neighborhood was white when we first moved in. So there were there were a couple of the um, neighborhoods that were primarily black where just were busing kids to areas that have more um, integration within the schools. Mm-hmm. And so we, when I came to school, right around the same time that was happening, and you know that whole thing where they try to track students and they yeah. put you and place you, like what level are you performing academically? Well, I got placed in the lower level tracking starting in the third grade. And that's where it matters about how your parents are advocating for you. Because my, my mother was like, what the hell are you saying? My son is capable. And, and, and basically from third grade all the way through eighth grade, it was a push and a battle of getting lift, pushed and elevated to the appropriate academic levels. And part of it was they tried to track and put all the black students in the lower track. And my parents, my mother in particular, was advocating to make sure that didn't happen to her son. So I think by the time I got to high school, I was it was just in, in reinforced and instilled in me where I was just working extra hard to make, make sure I was going to succeed. Now, here's the thing that I found out later on when I was an adult was that, oh, I actually as a as a. After I had gone to you know college at Vanderbilt and I went to Howard Law School as an adult successful executive was when I actually did get tested and I was like oh I had ADHD <laughs> <laughs> I overcompensated with the just the extra work the amount of hours and the reinforcement of excellence to get to the place to exceed as as I did through high school college and to graduate and make it through law school. I didn't even realize that that was a condition that I had. So, so, so Charles, why Howard Law School instead of Howard Medical School since your dad was a doctor, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you exactly. I remember that like it was yesterday. I was doubling up in, in um, science in high school thinking maybe I'd be a physician. I thought two things, perhaps going into medicine or I'm going to go into business. Those were my two ideas. Now, I I broadly, when I thought business, I thought stockbroker. I had didn't really know business, but I had an entrepreneurial sort of business mindset. But then also my father being a physician, I thought that perhaps that. By the time I got to Vanderbilt and I took that my my first couple of science classes, I quickly was like, I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to medical school. <laughs> this is not my passion. And then I think it was Econ 101. I felt, you know what? I, I like political science. So that's what I ended up settling in with. So I didn't go either out, although I apply business to what I'm doing with scaling and, and as a CEO of Macro. But uh, those were a couple of those ideas of early career tracks that I perhaps thought that I was going to go down. Now, I was going to ask you this uh, off the record, but since we're here right now, I'll tell you when I was looking at your background and I saw Vanderbilt and I knew you had went to law school and I I just glanced, I assumed that H was going to say Harvard versus Howard. Did the Harvard ever cross your mind as a path or did because of your dad and your uncle, you said it's got to be Howard? Well, 
I went to Vanderbilt and they, they call they call it, uh, uh, Vanderbilt being the Harvard or South or Harvard is the Vanderbilt of the North or something like that. Uh, right. I'm someone who does, who is really learns by doing. And so I would say that I did the, or my earlier years at Vanderbilt, I did, I kind of struggled and my, my academics and my grades went up uh, as the years proceeded, but I didn't necessarily have, I didn't have extraordinary grades at Vanderbilt. So I think when I was looking at grad schools, perhaps I could have looked at, at, at Harvard law, but I don't think that's where I was headed. Right. And, but then I also looked at what kind of life experience I wanted. And I worked for two years in the corporate world after Vanderbilt. And I, I was working for this Fortune 500 company in, uh, that was based out of Stanford, Connecticut, this uh, Fortune 500 company called Champion International was a paper company. I was the only uh, senior, well, I was the one, only like African-American executive out of like 3,000 people in this division of the company. I was placed in their Cincinnati, Ohio office and I had a five-state sales territory of Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. And not the big cities like Indianapolis and Cincinnati, all the little ones in between. Suffice to say, after a year and a half of that and I was looking and applying to, to law schools, Howard, given it was already in my blood, the legacy and the, and the history of Howard. Also, I was very interested in thinking about civil rights as well. Thurgood Marshall and how many other incredible titans have gone to, to Howard. I wanted that as part of my legacy. So when I was accepted to Howard Law, it was hands down my number one choice. And, uh, and, and I also wanted a, the, the, the experience of being in an HBCU being in, in Washington, D.C. at a Howard University, at Howard Law, it was it was an incredibly rewarding experience and, and definitely one of the, the highlights of my young of my of my younger years. So um, I loved it there. So let's jump, Charles, to the iconic William Morris. All right. <laughs> OK, and I will to let you tell our audience how iconic William Morris is. I'm in the business, so I, I know it. But I'm going to let you describe how iconic this agency is okay. within the entertainment industry. So uh, the William Morris Agency is the, the oldest of all of the entertainment institutions um, that, you know, back even back to even the vaudeville days, you know, when the silent movies and people performing on stage uh, started in New York. Then they off, opened an office in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and by the time I landed in the William Morris mailroom, I think they were at their 99th year of doing business by the time I landed in the William Morris mailroom. And I did a lot of research when I was at Howard Law and looking at my career path and wanting to um, mesh my interests around entertainment and content, as well as my interest in building a business and launching a media company one day. And I looked at all the different paths. And I looked at, I thought about private equity. I looked at it and thought about if I practice law and then I went to the business side of things. But then I learned about this agency world. And what I learned was how many titans of industry, people that are multi-billionaires that have built media companies, you know, people like Barry Diller and David Geffen, heads of a, of a lot of the studios, famous people like the first black uh, agent was famous. Amos was, a, was the first black agent uh, at the William Morris Agency. And so I, I thought, well, look, if I went into this space, got the experience, um, learned about the industry from the ground floor up, that one day 
of being an artist advocate and an agent representative that one day that would be equipped with the tools and the resources and the experience to then one day launch and build my own company. And I thought that that would be the perfect set of my interest and skill set, having a creative interest in lean. And I'm really good at identifying talent. My corporate and sales experience that I had, you know, in between undergraduate and law school and, and also some of the like um, sales experience and uh, third party uh, marketing experience I had in, in, in undergrad. And then coupled with my legal background and training and my law degree from Howard, that all of that together felt like I went into the world of being an agent that I would I would do extraordinarily well. And um, but the thing that I also learned was you've got to start from the ground floor. You literally you start in the mailroom. And that's exactly I mean, is, what is, I did. Is that like a, a yeah. real path? You know, I've seen that over and over in stories about you. So on our side of the business, they call an agency. You got to start in the pit. So is the mailroom like the pit? The mailroom is like the pit. It's or if you're on Wall Street, it's like you're started out as an analyst, right? You know, like, uh, but it's it's um, it's where you pay your dues. You how undergrad degree in the mailroom, Charles. It depends. It varies for me from mailroom to floater. Like before, I actually landed in an area. It was nine months for me, and you're literally working like ninety hundred hours a week, running around delivering mail, gopher, uh, you know, reading scripts at night, um, immersing yourself in the, the understanding of the bottom of the business. And then you work from, you know, all the way up. And it's honestly, it's prestigious and hard to get in, especially back then when I started, there were, I was the only, um, on the film and television side of our training program, I was the only one when I landed there, that was the only one at that time in film and TV. There were a couple of my brothers who were um, in the the, the music pro program. And um, what I learned there was that I, when I actually did get promoted uh, two and a half years into it, I think I was the first African-American to start in the trainee program and become a film and television agent, that that was the first time. And then when I became partner years later, it was the, I became the first partner in the history of any one of the larger major talent agencies, I was, you know, there was now, thankfully there's, there's several others and many others that have come, but, but when it did, when I did get promoted, it was historical. And I, that was in 101 years when I got promoted. And then when I became agent, it was a, maybe another, it's another seven, but a partner with another seven or seven years after that. So, so, so Charles, I want to I want to pause right here because, and I want you to speak to a lot of the millennials out in the audience and some of those who are, are pushing through that Gen Z demographic right now. They would say, "I wouldn't have did that. I got a <laughs> law degree. All right, I ain't nowhere in hell. I'm starting off in no mail room. I ain't got no patience for that. It ain't enough pay. No, I'm not doing that. Speak to those." People. Well, I would I would say uh, do your research in every industry and in every field. There's there are different paths, and look, there's no one way of getting there. But I also understood some of the hurdles for us that we have to work ten times harder, be ten times smarter. We have to you know be savvy in, in how we navigate through all of the worlds that we're in, and and all of us have gotten to where we are by doing that. I also knew that there if we try to skip a step, like hey, let me jump this and skip that step that you could try to do it. Um, and I've saw people who tried to do it, but what ended up happening to many who did try to skip a step is 
inevitably someone would say, well, they got there just because, or they didn't put in the work, and then they wouldn't have the longevity. I knew in order to have the longevity, every one of them needed to see me go from the ground floor up just like they did. I need to do better than all the folks I started with and keep excelling the way we always do and be smart about it. And the only way I could make it through it was honestly, there was so much community support. The people that blazed the trail before me that had cracked cracked enough holes in the windows and and provided enough community support, my family support. Uh, and then frankly, other people that mentored me that saw something in me, similar to the conversation we're having where the people saw something in you. There are people from our community that saw something in me. There were lawyers and, and other folks in the industry. There were a few of the clients of the agency that said, why isn't there a brother there? We like this brother, Charles. You know, why isn't he on a desk yet? And then also, too, there were people that outside of our community that I connected with that mentored me that saw something in me as well. And it was the combination of all of those things, me doing my part. And then the last piece is, I would say, was God and my belief and my faith that also helped take me through it. So my word to the Gen Z millennials is you got to do your part. You got to do your part. You got to pay your dues. Now, you don't have to necessarily toil away for 20 years the way perhaps the older generation, even generations older than me had to, but you're still going to have to pay some dues and you're going to, you know, have to be smart about it. And otherwise it just, it, the likelihood of success isn't, is, is, is much more challenging if you don't pay your dues. And it's something about committing yourself, being humble and being willing to roll up your sleeves. Uh, and, and then Yes, it can still happen for you in the early years, in the 20s, but you still got to pay your dues at some point. So, so, so Charles, when, when you read your story, you, you go from the mailroom, you, you become an agent in film and TV, and then all these names start coming up, like Oprah and Tyler Perry and Janet Jackson and Terrence Howard and Andre 3000 and Michael B. Jordan. How does that happen? If, if I'm the guy in college sitting in the barbershop and you walk in, I'm going to look like, now, he he looked like me. He kind of act like me, but I don't know Oprah. I don't know Tyler Perry. How did you get those relationships? How did that happen for you? Well, with everyone, every one of the relationships of the different artists and people that I've been blessed to work with, there's a story behind every one of them. I'd say the biggest thing was every media figure, artist, celebrity, they're incredibly talented and so unique and special with, with how they've gotten to where they are in their careers, but they're people just like you and I. And they're connecting with people on a human level and being able to understand their goals and their dreams and vision, and then being someone who wants to be in support and the furtherance of it. And by being in a place like the William Morris Agency, that had this legacy and tradition and weight behind it. And I got the, ex the, the experience and the skill set to understand how our industry works. And so then I would get to know and build relationship with artists to then hear and listen to understand what they were looking to do in their careers and their vision for what they wanted to accomplish. And then I could then put a plan in place and utilize the collective resources of this massive of that massive institution to work to help fulfill and in, in the way that we could as agents uh, to help them accomplish their goals. 
uh, and what those projects would be and how to negotiate those deals alongside their attorneys. And so I'll, I would say that there was there's a through line for me of identifying artists before they became as prominent in their field as they are now. So, you know, when in my first year as an agent, um, I was introduced to this incredibly talented producer promoter named Walter Latham. He's the gentleman that, that, that was, he was the same age that I was at the time. I was 30, my first year as an agent. And he promoted the Kings of Comedy tour. And I was and one of my colleagues in our music book group said, this guy, Walter Latham wants to become a film producer and he's going to make this movie about the Kings of Comedy. I, I, we went on, we signed him and I became his main agent. I was six months into being an agent. Then but one of the first things we did was when he was putting the Kings of Comedy movie together, Spike Lee was the director and I get, it was added to Spike Lee's team as a young agent because Spike Lee said to his agents, where are the brothers? Where are the brothers? And then I'd met his agent, Dave Warshafter, who's been a great friend and, and a mentor through the years. And he met me before I got promoted and I laid out my plan and vision. And he and Jim Wyatt were the ones who promoted me. And then I got added to Spike's team and Spike was the director of that film. After the success of it, Walter said, hey, there's this guy named Tyler Perry. Have you ever heard of him? And he sent me some DVDs of his plays. He had never done any film or TV. I watched the plays. I was like, wow, this is interesting. But then I'll be honest with you. It was when I was at a couple of fan reunions in Atlanta and some barber shops uh, in L.A. And I would just, you know, shoot the breeze with my barber from literally the moment I had just moved to L.A. I said, man, there's this gentleman named Tyler Perry. I just saw these plays. And, man, he's got this huge audience from it. He was like, the lady in three rows down said, Tyler Perry? I was like, what, you know him? They were like, and they started telling all these things about these plays and how big, and, and it was clear what a massive audience he had, but it hadn't been brought in the film and TV. So then we put a team together. I was the young agent. We started working with Tyler. I was part of it, you know, made the calls, connected him with the studio. So it was before, it was early on. Die of a Mad Black Woman and the, putting together that deal and introducing the Lionsgate, negotiating this transformative thing and the television deals we did after that. It was early on. Now he's Tyler Perry, like the mogul, and the, he he always was. But it, it was he had the idea and the vision. I was happened to be in the agency and could be part of like helping to be a part of being a conduit. And so I could just go on and on with the stories from Andre Benjamin before he hey y'all broke. When he said, hey, I'm this big rapper, but I want to, you know, Ryan Coogler, I remember sitting down with him, you know, I, literally our first two hour meeting in my office. And he was and we read, read Fruitvale Station. My colleague, Craig Castell, was like, he's special. And I met him, too. We talked for two hours and shared things that I hadn't literally told anyone in our industry about some of my career journey. I'm not surprised at all that he's had the career that he had. I knew then how special he was. I knew how well Fruitvale Station, he told me the idea for Creed. We connected him with Sylvester Stallone. So my only point in my answer to your question is, I would also have vision. I met so many of these artists before they became successful, were part of being their team. So folks like Oprah came later in my career. When, when she, you know, me and a team of, of agents started working with her, and so that was, you know, she'd already, she was already Oprah at that point. And at that point, I'm pinching myself like, what a blessed life to hear it is 
that I get to work with Oprah Winfrey and as she was building out and, and, and beginning to produce more film and I could be, you know, the point person on her film side of her, her team. So um, each one of the stories are different, but I would say that most of the artists, I was earlier in their careers, icons like Prince and Janet Jackson and, and, and Oprah, I came in later, but then I was like the, you know, new blood bringing in a different energy to what they were looking to do and, and further their, their missions. So Charles, you just mentioned, mentioned this word vision, and I want to ask you the same question I asked Bob Johnson. Is it inherent or is it learned? I'd say a combination, but the, I, I have a gift of under, of seeing things and then the intuition of identifying uniquely positioned artists and people because there's an identification and identifying executives and I have a track record of young people I've mentored or, you know, hired or been a part of building at, at macro filmmakers, multi-hyphenates, entrepreneurs of seeing something special in someone, just like they saw it, people who saw it in me. And then also working to help support and cultivate that. It's one thing to identify, but then you also have to work to be a part of helping to shape in advance. And so I was able to do that as an, as an agent, I'm doing that. And me and my colleagues and partners are doing that from macro with the work we've done with the incredible filmmakers that we've financed and produced their, their projects. Um, and so, but then part of it is learned because I, the educational background, the years of, of the ground grinding from mailroom up and my years of negotiating deals, my years of calls and negotiations and packaging projects with every one of the film and television studios. So part of it is the business side. You can have an intuition, but if you don't know how to execute, what does that matter? So I've been able to do both, the combination of the two, but you got to have the vision first. Right. So earlier in the conversation, Charles, you, you, you're talking about being able to do a lot of different things and that you had the confidence in your own ability to be able to do things that maybe you were just starting out or you never had done before. What gave you that confidence? What gives you that confidence today uh, to say, hey, I can do that? Because in our community, a lot of people don't have that confidence. I, I believe it, it was instilled early on. I think early on, people telling me what I couldn't do, particularly folks not from our community experiencing racism early on when I was eight years old and someone tried to track me in the, you know, lower, lower learning um, deficiency group, um, having mother saying, F what they're saying, you can do whatever it is you want to do in life. Uh, honestly, I've always been, always been um, underestimated, always from, from elementary school, high school, maybe even college, even, probably even law school. <laughs> and is that a motivation? William Morris, every time. Even now with Macro, I, I, I can tell you with a surety, when I first launched, there were people like, oh, that's great, Charles. <laughs> okay, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Seven and a half years later, 15 Academy Award nominations, you know, how we've scaled as a company. There were folks that just had no idea. 
and honestly, they don't realize we're just getting started. So um, I, where does that confidence come? I think it was instilled in me from my parents, early life experiences, the fortitude, and then also, man, my faith. I, you know, my, I, my, both my parents are, are people of faith and it was just an upbringing. And, and, and then also, too, being myself. My grandmother, the advice she gave me before I dr- jumped in my U-Haul truck and drove out here. By the way, my grandmother lived with us, too, from the time I was eight years old. So I also had, a, you know, a second you know, grandmother in the house, too, who was um, very much a part of my upbringing. And she was just like, Charles, go out there and be yourself. They'll have to love you. And honestly, from from mailroom to partner to CEO of Macro, I maintain that and try my best to stay exactly who I am and not be swayed by the Hollywood swirl of the things going on around me and try to keep that center and my family at the center of, of, of keeping my compass. Now, Charles, you guys represent agents. You you get deals done. You also finance some yes. of these deals. Tell us about that portion. Why did you kind of click and say, I want to do this yeah. now? How did you go now, into I, that business? I, I knew in launching um, in launching Macro that it that we were not looking to be a pro, just a producers for hire. We we're building a media company of the future, which as part of this multi-platform media company, one of our plat, one of the divisions is our stu- our content studios, both film, television, and digital content. And that we needed to have not only capital to develop projects, but also to finance productions. That in order for our for us to be empowered to be able to tell our stories from our community, you're not empowered if you only can tell a story by going to one of the major eight studios and having them green light something and tell you how it should be done. And here's the small allocated budget. We needed to come from a place of being empowered in order to tell these stories or to at least in most cases come to the table and sit alongside of them and say, why don't we make this story like with the way we made Judas and the Black Messiah, where we said, look, we're, we're, we're going to put up half of the capital for the film. Why don't you put up the other half and then we, and we'll utilize your distribution, which is what we did with Warner Brothers, with Judas and the Black Messiah. Coming to the table with Project Package with incredible partner, Ryan Coogler, who brought us the project and Shaka King and the, the brilliant filmmaker who you know, co-wrote the script and directed it. The power of coming together on it with our capital and utilizing the amazing team at Warner Brothers and distribution as how the movie was made so authentically and unapologetically is because we weren't just like, hey, can we develop this and please green light this one day and like, help us make it. And so I, I started out macro. We went and raised capital. We have incredible partners. And that's where we came from in, in terms of being able to, to do that. The second thing in addition to what we were doing to build our media company and to be able to finance and produce content across all the platforms was I understood that there was a need for others and that there's, an, there's a lack of access to capital and that 
so much of all of the innovation and economic clout that's going to happen and transformation from our communities is coming from what's happening in the venture and technology space. So what we did is we used some of our seed capital. And in addition to building macro, we started making strategic investments in companies that were aligned with our mission and operating in areas that were synergistic to us, but were different than what we're building. Those investments were incredibly successful. And then I created a partnership with two amazing partners, um, Adrian Fenty and, and Mike Palin was part of our founding team. And we launched an early stage fund. And, and then, then we had a second fund. And look, those funds did extraordinarily well. And then that, that my partners joined forces with another partner and have a much larger fund. So we're on like fund four. That's, I, I can't announce the number, but the, the, the third fund was 110 million. So this last fund is, it will, will, which will hopefully, they will announce one day, um, will be even larger. And I will just say that 65% of those founders of those companies are, are, are companies led by women and people of color. And that is, is going to have a transformative impact on our communities. And so, yes, we're building macro, but I, I understood the uniqueness of the platform, what we're building. But I wanted to also be a part of creating change globally, economically for people of color, which is also part of our mission. Charles, we here at Waymaker believe that every successful person has had Waymakers. Tell us about <laughs> some of your Waymakers. Who are people that help make the way? <laughs> who are people who help make the way? All right, well, I keep saying it, but God, definitely my parents, you know, Wynton King, Dr. King in Atlanta, my mom, Frances King, my sister, yeah, my sister, who's a, who's a counselor. She's a psychologist. She's a doctor. Dr. Lynn, she actually just co- co-authored her first book about, you know, uh, uh, mental, uh, the need for proper mental care for, for, for black women. Um, my grandmother, you know, uh, the, 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 my family now, in addition to that, there's my family now, my wife, Stacy, who's my partner, my life partner, like every move, everything I've, that we've done, we've been in partnership on the last 21 years. And even the five years we dated before then, <laughs> um, and, and my, and my, and our, and our two sons who are 15 and 13, I would say I've had great mentors. I've been so blessed with great mentors. Um, in during my time in law school, when I met Tanya Heidelberg, who you may know, Tanya Heidelberg Yacht was a she was a VP at MTV. I wrote her this crazy letter, this four page letter. Her assistant Patty, who I remember to this day how amazing she was, let me take an informational meeting with with Tanya. That turned into my internship at MTV. The summer between my second and third year of law school, it was transformative for my life. We were talking earlier about our internship programs. Right, Lewis? She's the one who provided the internship for me that helped show how big the world was, the opportunities there. I didn't know about agencies before then. I thought, hey, maybe I'm going to be an entertainment lawyer. It really opened up my aperture. That summer of 95, when so much was happening at the height of, of, of hip hop, I remember going to Biggie Small's Platinum Party. First time I met Diddy, like it just, it really inspired me. It had a, it made a difference. Tanya Heidelberg, 1000% was a way maker for me and uh, made a huge impact. And um, when I, I would say I, I didn't get to know Bob Johnson until recently, but I tell you what, I was in law school, Washington, D.C., 
and BT being centered there and his story and what he and his team and Deborah Lee and all of you guys, the inspiration I took from BT. I tried to get internships, but I couldn't. <laughs> but, but now look at how I'm like friends with 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 Bob and Deborah Lee. I pinch myself sometimes. Like I like I I actually personally know these Titans. They from afar had a huge impact on my trajectory. Reginald Lewis. I read why should white guys have all the fun? I can't it it opened up my mind to the financial sector and the impact that MA raising capital could have at building a company one day. And then when I moved to LA, there were lots of great entertainment lawyers and folks that that, that were great waymakers. Dow Miller was one of them. Nina Shaw is another. They really opened up doors when I was in those, those that mail that mailroom time. There was Louise West. My law school classmate, Matt Middleton, who sent me clients when I was still an assistant, like Missy Elliott, DMX, my second year law school. These have transformed them in my life. So I had to give them shout outs. And then there, there were the, the, the folks at William Morris that didn't come out from my community. Dave Wachester was a big part of that. A guy named John Fogelman, a lady named Nicole David. They, they all, and others, but they in particular played a transformative part. Even this poor guy named Ramsey, I say poor guy because he had to deal with me being his assistant. But I got promoted off of his desk and the opportunity to be on his desk. I learned a lot from him, you know, and, and I was a terrible assistant. I tried really hard, but uh, <laughs> Ramsey was three years and Ramsey was three years younger than me. I got promoted. I got promoted off of Ramsey's desk and we're still friends to, you know, to this day. And, um, you know, I, opportunity. And and there were people that just mentored and supported me. So I know that's a lot of waymakers I shouted out, but I just felt compelled I'd throw out those names. Final question, Charles. What's next for Charles King and Macro? Well, let's see. We're seven and a half years in. We have our five core businesses. There's our content studio, film, TV, and digital. We have our representation vertical which, you know, M88 represents massive movie stars and filmmakers. And there's a group called Uncommon that represents the digital media influencers. Um, and then we've got our creative agency, Brand Macro. So those are our core verticals. What you'll see is they're going to, each of those areas are going to scale. They're going to continue to get bigger. The macro brand is, very, you know, we've, we've had lots of critical acclaim. What you're going to see are a larger range of projects, more commercial projects and additional critical acclaim. We got a couple of amazing things coming out this fall, like this big sci-fi movie called They Clone Tyrone with Jamie Foxx and John Boyega and Tiana Parrish. That's going to be, it's just so dope. This amazing filmmaker named Joel Taylor. We are uh, working with Alan Hughes on a five-part docuseries uh, about Tupac um, that uh, with the Tupac's family, this, this brilliant, Alan Hughes is brilliant. And uh, we were, we're an EP on that. And then we just have a wide slate of projects that'll start coming out. I would say that you're just going to see macro continue to scale and continue to grow and continue to have impact, create amazing content with the spectrum of our stories. Um, and we're just getting started. We're only like 50 people now and we're, we'll be, we'll be definitely continuing to scale and become a much larger institution uh, than what we are right now. Well, Charles King, thank you so much, man. This this has been amazing. What an amazing journey thus far. You have been blessed and uh, you have recognized your waymakers and you are a waymaker <laughs> yourself. 
And we thank you for sharing, you know, just this early part of your journey and story. And we look forward to getting together with you again to sort of continue uh, telling your journey and how you're impacting not only the entertainment business, but black and brown communities. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Lewis. And thank you for everything that you're doing for our community and showing the excellence of our community. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Charles D. King. Find out more about Macro by going to staymacro.com. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com and be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 